Welcome to Laughing Historically, an audio tour through all of time. I'm Brandon, and this is my brother, Nevin. Nevin, what do you have to talk about today? Tea thieves. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about tea thieves. All right. So I was recently teaching the American Revolution in my classroom, and something that always comes up is the Boston Tea Party, because it's a funny thing just because tea parties and kids get confused by it all the time. Um, And so whenever I teach it, it's always interesting because you talk about the taxation and why it happened, and this one company that went... But it was in hard times, and that was the East India Company, trading company of, of Great Britain. And the question that always appears in my head is, what happened to this company that they needed to force the colonists to buy their tea? Um, yeah, so I'm currently starting to watch the Tom Hardy show uh, that was on FX in the BBC uh, this last season called T- Taboo, which deals with the East India Company in its late stages. When we were researching this... I saw the two of them linked a lot. So I was like, so let me watch Taboo, because I love Tom Hardy, and I wanted to watch it anyway. I didn't even know it had to do with the East India I, Company. I didn't, I didn't even know really that show was even on until I did research about this. <laughs> so, so, no, and, and First episode's it, like, really good. That. Yeah. First episode's very good, and the East India Company is, spo- not spoilers, it's, they're the bad guys so far. Yeah, and you didn't really you don't really get this out of a textbook, because in a textbook, it's the, the king who's the bad guy here. And you're kind of like, okay, the, ting, the king is forcing Parliament to tax, and Parliament's also doing this in their own accord, to tax the colonies and to force them to buy tea from the East India Company. But why did this company have to do this? And why are they in so much power? So the more I looked into this question, the crazier the answer became. <laughs> it became <laughs> so crazy that I had to reduce the size of it because it was so big. Just to give you an understanding of what the East India Company was, okay? They not only did trade through Asia and Middle East, but it also became a ruler of a lot of the territories the United Kingdom owned. Um, think like a company with an army. Um, in addition, they're basically a. When I started researching this, they were a country for all intents and purposes. Yes, they had yes. a military. They had training. They had administration. They were massive, and they so they started around. What was it? The 1500s? Yeah, late, late 1500s, um, after the Spanish Armada. And it this la- is Elizabeth, uh, Elizabethan times. Yes. So you've got, like, the Spanish are, the Spanish basically ruled the seas because yeah. uh, of Christopher Columbus, right? Like, think he had to go to the Spain to, to get on the open ocean and explore. And then uh, the Spanish attack Elizabeth I, and then she, through, like, an amazing turn of events destroys the Spanish Armada and yes. then England and the Dutch basically have the seas to fight over. Yeah. And so because of that defeat, then you have the India ocean opened up to trading. Um, so funny mention Queen Elizabeth, she was actually a shareholder in the East India company. Um, and what essentially the, Dutch, the uh, British East India company is, is a joint stock company. People can invest in it. Um, that's Queen Elizabeth and other shareholders. And so they're founded around, this, I think 1600 was the year they were founded by John Watts and George White. And they're founded as the Governor and Company of Merchants of London Trading into the it's long name. But anyway, yeah. ev- eventually in time, they solidify into the, the East India Company. And for centuries, they trade spices between the East Indies and between England. 
And because with the exploration, everyone becomes like obsessed with spices because yeah. <laughs> England's a very bland country. They don't have a lot of uh, fancy things and they get they finally get to what they called the Orient. And all of a sudden there's amazing things like cinnamon and tea. And yes. And that was a very popular during this time period. Um, and funny you should mention spices too, because I was just reading recently in a book I'm reading that Rome, when it was when it surrendered to the the Gauls, um, I think it was the Gauls. I, um, they uh, were their treaty offered money, but also pepper. Pepper was one of the of the tre- the parts of the treaty. Um, so I found that funny that spice is always something that well. Pepper is a whole thing to get on. Pepper drives people crazy, but that's a whole other history thing yeah. to get so into later. Spices are absolutely essential to in, in throughout the thousands all the way through. So how does tea exactly come into this? Well, by the 1700s, as you mentioned, tea is becoming one of the most popular drinks of the day. Not only to help you relax, but it also gives you a huge caffeine boost. And so people begin drinking it a lot more than they would water, because water is not safe to drink, really, back in that period, unless you boiled it or you knew of a safe stream drink or a well to drink it out of. All right, so the problem is that all the tea in the world comes from China, and the East India Company can't really control the quality of the price because it's owned by another country. So they had an opportunity here to make some real money, but they need to somehow figure out a way of getting the tea for cheap. The thing that China really wanted was silver for coinage and so forth. So how do you get that much silver? You know, it it, it becomes a very difficult thing to get a hold of. You need mines. Instead of just figuring out a way of mining more silver and so forth, they figure out another trade good that they'd be interested in. And it's opium. Opium? Yeah. And so, because the Portuguese... Uh, figured out that its properties, and they also have done a lot of trading with China at this point, um, and they've realized that opium is something that is very addictive and something that they can trade a lot with the Chinese for. So the Chinese want the opium. Yes. And and the so, English could get it. Exactly. Because so, <laughs> they do have poppies. Exactly. So, so the East India Company begins buying tons of land in Bengal, India, and growing tons of opium. Um, but they can't just sell the opium straight to the Chinese. They want the silver for the tea. So you need a middleman in this situation. So what they do is they have a trade post in Calcutta, which is in that area. And so they begin trading the opium to they call them country traders, which are just private traders who are licensed by the company to take goods from India to China. So Privateers. Exactly. So these people, they can sell the opium to and get silver from them. And they'll bring the opium into China and sell it there, right? So you have this middleman now that's pretty much washing, (laughs) washing your money for you, so to speak. And they're getting tons of silver and they're able to buy tons of tea for it right to the yeah. point where the chinese is are becoming so addicted to opium that by 1767 right they were only yeah. roughly 1000 chests a year right to about 10000 chests a year and then within 100 years 40000 chests a year 
So you're, ta- <laughs> so you're talking about t- ten times and four times the amount in a matter, you know, 40 times the amount of opium in a matter of less than 100 years. And wow. that's amazing that they were able to do this and ascend, not, not 100% get away with it, but they figured out a way of getting tea for a cheap price by pretty much knowingly addicting a country to a severe drug. You know, and it's kind of, uh, I guess, ironic because the the poppy uh, as a flower um, became a symbol of uh, World War One veterans in England. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. so, uh, of, uh, of the poem in Flanders Fields uh, that mentions how poppies were the first um, things to grow on graves uh, of veterans. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> and so it's like... It's weird how you. It's even you know, symbols it's are messy. Obviously, um, the the dynasty in China has to do something about this, right? Because they're getting people dying left and right from opium addiction. So they begin making laws and legislation to pro- pro- prohibit the trade of opium. And uh, this is where you get into the opium wars between Great Britain and China. And essentially what you have here is Britain pretty much taking control of China. They, they, they're pretty much given Hong Kong in the agreement and the treaty of um, from the opium wars. So you have uh, then Great Britain essentially taking over one of the... We, we need your opium so bad. It, it, here's a whole it, it, yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And so... That's at the end of the story, though. I mean, that's just part of it. By 1850, the East India Company sets out to create their own tea industry because things are getting too messy in China. So this isn't the last slight against China that I'm getting at. They keep hitting China. So uh, they figure out there is a better way of growing their own tea and getting their own tea. Um, And that is by sending people to China to steal the tea seeds. So they send a man named Robert Fortune, which I love his name. Um, he's a Scottish botanist. He's Bob Fortune. Yeah. Tea spy. Tea spy. He is. He's a tea thief. So he's hired by the East India Company in 1848, and his job is to go to China, steal the best tea plants and the best farmers, and find out a way to make it grow in India. And they do it. They do it successfully. So and this is when tea is also kind of reaching its full out. Yes, height. yes, in and, England. And so you have the Chinese who desperately need the tea industry. It's their last like point of survival at this point against the opium taking over their country. At least have that part of their economy, right? And they strip it from them. So they get Hong Kong, they pretty much own the country, and they destroy its culture and its people, and they take the last thing they have out of their economy. And I was reading a few, uh, I was reading an NPR article about this, um, and they said that it takes China until this point in history, almost past, I would say, 50 or 60 years, for China to finally recover from this. China has struggled economically since this time period. And Until that's the, very recently, when yes. now they're rising as a new yes. like a superpower. Yes. But it's all because of the England and the opium thing. It's also, I guess, kind of, kind of, you know, you get some comeuppance because really uh, the rise of tea in England in the in the mid um, 
1800s, late in the, the late 1800s, is, uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution is happening in England, and uh, the, the, the workers were all, you know, the low-down, lower-class workers. They would go home and drink beer, and small beers, they call them. They were low alcohol, but still, you would go home, and to relax, you would unwind with some alcohol, and it just became a piece of their culture. But when tea came around, it was a kind of a, a cheap way yes. for a, a worker to, to unwind, and that's with the rise of tea uh, in England in tea time. And, and, and it was and, safe to drink and work. That's what was a big to thing. Because you were boiling the water yes. to make the tea, so it was safe, like beer. And actually, I've, I've read a lot to link that the when the working class started to not drink as much and tea actually helps your mind, it caffeinates you, it makes you more aware is kind of when you start to see the rise of the working class, because they're kind of finally awakening because they're being caffeinated. So really the, the, the the rich people kind of got it in the end in a way, because the very thing that, that they stole from China and made into an industry kind of helped bring about their labor laws workers, and so forth labor yeah, laws yes. and no more children working in factories yeah, yes. and all of those things and eventually women getting the vote so the the the, the final question that I, you know back to the original question is how did this conglomerate that pretty much took over china an ancient civilization right and completely stripped it of its economy um how did it become bankrupt like how did it how did the t act even how did it start? So by the late 1700s, the EIC, EIC um, East India Company, they were mismanaging a lot of their properties. And like you mentioned with the issue of the working class, you have famine, death, disease, because you know they're not treating their workers properly. Um, up to some areas, one-sixth of the population, the local population, died because of how poorly managed the, and how forced and poor hours they were um, working under the East India Company. So that was one of the c- contributions that led to them not properly managing their properties. Um, but there also was some also commercial stagnation, stagnation and trade depression, as you mentioned, the post-Industrial Revolution period. Um, so Britain was becoming more entangled with revolutions, you know, America particularly, one of the major importers of tea. So, uh, and France was also this time on the brink of revolution. So Europe is getting very desperate, okay? And that's hurting the, a lot of the trade in the areas. Um, and so that's why you have this, uh, and also you mentioned how the, the, the royal families also have ties into the East India Company. Yeah. So you have Parliament now and the king now asking for financial help for these companies because they are so entangled with the governments. Ah, bailout. Exactly. It's a bailout, and, and 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 that's where I was. I was kind of like, this is probably one of the biggest, one of the biggest bailouts, um, because you you, 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 yeah. you you have the T Act passed in 1773, right? That that gave the company greater autonomy in running its trade in America to the point where it was a monopoly, right? It, it, they had to buy, you had to buy tea from the East India Company, and colonists pretty much refused to do it. And so this caused the colonists to begin one of the biggest acts that led to all this fervor against the king and parliament. Um, you're forcing us to buy something that we have no say in. And you mentioned before with the rise of the, of the labor parties and so forth, you have people now starting to defend their rights. Um, and that's pretty amazing that this co- one company, right, 
was started with such power and over time because of the rise of the working class and so forth was pretty much destroyed because of it yeah and I, you know ultimate of irony especially if you want to get into what's happening today a little bit but now without, without without talking about what's happening today is this country was founded on uh <laughs> Acting up against corporations gone yeah, out of control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it is. And, and, and that's one of the great things about America is that, you know, we are more powerful than the corporations. Um, and that's where I think a lot of people um, in America have this whole um, belief of power of the consumer. And um, I feel that's such a powerful thing as an American to... To, it's one of our democratic rights, and that's where this whole Tea Party stem. That's the, the whole belief comes from, pretty much. Yeah, and it's it's pretty pretty fascinating. So let's kind of dive into how out of control trade got at its height. All right. So if you think England is in chaos now. Okay. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know much about the 1660s. A coincidence, as Nevin wanted to talk about the uh, East India Trading Company, this is um, this June right now, as we're recording, is the 350th anniversary of June 1667, uh, which was the Raid of Medway. Now, have you ever heard of the Raid of Medway, Nevin? Um, I know until I mentioned it for this podcast. <laughs> well, the only time that's talked about, I took a military history course in um, college. But it, one of the things that our professor talked mainly about was naval victories, and so he talked about how I believe the Dutch pretty much gave Great Britain a spanking. Yes, and it now, was not. Here's, here's why. <laughs> here's why no one has ever heard of the raid of Medway. Probably because they lost. It is considered by some one of the worst defeats in history. And you're talking about a country that prides themselves on naval victories. Yeah, so here we go. <laughs> history podcast. You knew it was coming. Here, here it comes. Some military history. But I swear to God, this is some darn interesting naval, um, military history. To set the stage, as Nevin was doing, we're talking about the East India Company. Um, let's rewind to the 1500s. We talked about how Spain controlled the seas and Elizabeth destroys the Spanish Armada and you have England and the Dutch now have the seas open to themselves. This led to some skirmishes because there were some key differences. Okay. And, and they become fierce rivals. England is all about, as we're talking about tariffs, taxes, their goods are supporting the East India company and in turn the government. Meanwhile, the Dutch were kind of uh, kind of a country run on business. Yes. But a piece of that, though, is f they believe in free trade. The Dutch are kind of clinically about do whatever you want. Uh, we don't want to be involved in it. Um, but meanwhile, the kind of the government is being run by companies. But anyway, Dutch goods are far more popular than English goods because surprise, surprise, they're cheaper because there's no tariffs. Yes. And this leads to some pretty extreme skirmishes. Uh, but when Oliver Cromwell, who you can't talk about England, uh, <laughs> Oliver Cromwell, he, old, iron, uh, old Ironsides himself, 
when he rises up with the people's, quote unquote, people's revolution in the mid 1600s, he tried to make peace with the Dutch because he found it, you know, we it's not in the best interest for us to be fighting with the Dutch. So let's try it. So he kind of forms an armistice, but he dies in natural causes, natural causes in 1658. Uh, And uh, we can get into him in another time, but he's buried in Westminster Abbey. The, uh, the royalists return to power. You know, the people are no longer in control. The royals come back. They have his corpse dug up, hung in chains, and beheaded because oh. I hate this guy so much. Oh, jeez. And so the royals come into power, and England falls into some pretty, pretty hard times. First, you've got the Great Plague, 1665 to six, uh, 1666. And you have the fire, London Fire. Fire? Yeah. 1666. Where most of um, London city burns to the ground, um, thanks to, thanks to a pie shop. <laughs> well, your your, con- your economy is suffering now at this point. Yeah, your economy is yeah. suffering because these royals are so poorly running the government, and so the Dutch and English conflict comes back up because the economy's in in the toilet, and it kind of reaches full out war in 1665 once again, probably because everyone's so plague crazy and nuts because their city burned to the ground there, there's more there, there are more anglo-dutch wars i just looked this up there oh and, and there's also like them fighting with each other in other wars so there's te- yeah. technically so well, since 1652 as the first anglo-dutch war all the way the napoleonic wars because the dutch were involved in that so you have like almost 200 years of them fighting each other yeah, I mean, it's because, remember, the business. It's all about uh, the business. So 1665, it erupts, the, the Dutch-Anglo War erupts. And it doesn't go so great for the England because things aren't going great. The royals aren't very good at ruling. And they kind of run out of money. They're just flat broke. And so this leads to, in 1667, two years later, you have some peace negotiations. And the, the, these start because, again... England can't keep can't keep going on. So they take their naval fleet, especially the big ones, and they park them. They just park them. We don't have the money anymore. The, our sailors haven't been paid in years at this point. But the Dutch, because again, I keep them. They're clinical. They they just don't <laughs> they don't care. They see England as a business competitor, not so much as human beings or a country. And so they want to do one final blow to their business competitor. Like, <laughs> hey, if if the other company is uh, on their last legs, you throw a sail, right? You you try to. You try to destroy the other company, and so it's very advantageous to them too because they're going up against uh, against the British Empire. You know, and they, yeah, they know that you know they're going to make a peace negotiations, but I think they thought it's the English Empire. They'll rebuild, they'll get back, and then we'll be in trouble again. And then who's going to buy our goods? But that's um, one thing about the Dutch. The Dutch are always, and I've, I realize this as I read more about other countries' histories. Um, they are involved in so many wars with financial um, backings. And you don't realize this until you read into certain wars about how much, you know, they're not putting soldiers on the ground, but financially, they can make or break your country. Dutch had a lot of money. Yes. Everyone was buying their cheap, cheap tea. Yes, yes. <laughs> and Dutch decide, let's put a fleet together and we're going to go to England and mess them up so that they won't come back and they won't 
uh, rise again. And so what they do is they get two English pilots um, who had defected, not airplane pilots, pilots. You know, <laughs> not this time boats. of year. <laughs> they get them and kind of use them to kind of get a, the, the lay of the land of, of England. Now, if you're not familiar with England, <laughs> London is on the River Thames, which is connected to the ocean. And what is wonderful about the River Thames, it's a big river, but it's kind of hard to navigate. So what's why London is such an amazing place and why the Romans settled there is that it's kind of fortified by just land. It's but rock, if you, rocky shores, too. Yeah, but if you know what you're doing, you know how the tides work, you can get in and out of London as long as you know what, what's going on. So the Dutch needed to get some Englishmen because they have the crazy idea they're going to do it. They're going to go right at the London area, which is unheard of unless you're the French. Um, it's unheard of. To, to go right at London. People just don't do it because it is, like I said, it's like the most fortified place in history. King's Landing. Yes. King's <laughs> Landing from Game of Thrones. <laughs> exactly. So what they do is they get their fleet together, in this, which includes a thousand Marines. Now, Marines weren't a thing. The Dutch invented them. Meaning soldiers that are made for boats. That's interesting. I never knew that. Yeah. So these, this, inclu- this attack included the first thousand Marines ever trained. The specialty and soldiers then doing this. Specialty soldiers made to come off a boat and attack the land. Huh. And so the Dutch use a, fo- a fog and they approach the, the Thames. And on June 6th, the fog blows away. So there goes their cover. And at this point, the, the captains hadn't told the crew what they were doing. And so the captains re- revealed to their crew, we're doing it. We're sailing up the Thames. And a lot of the crew think, hey, this is flat out nuts. <laughs> And a lot of them kind of debate the feasibility of such an attack. I mean, this is lots of mud on either side. You have to know the exact way to go. But again, they say, we've got English people with us. We're going to do it. England is kind of resting on their laurels. They're on peace negotiations, but also no one's crazy enough to try to go up the Thames. So they have a small fleet kind of there, England. A massive armada from the Dutch rolls up and this English fleet goes, oh, bloody hell, and turn around and start booking it up the Thames. The Dutch and this English fleet get as far as Gravesend, which if you look at the map is legitimately pretty far up. It's not, it's, it's in London area. I wouldn't call it London. Sometimes when people talk about this, like the Dutch attacked London, they attacked the London area. London's a big sprawling place. And so you can kind of consider Gravesend London adjacent. And they get that far. And at that point they kind of go, we can't, we can't, go this far. We, we did, that's pretty good. And But they kind of decide at this point, let's turn around and let's, instead of attacking the city directly, let's attack their, um, now I'm going to say this, someone's going to tell me I'm saying it wrong, uh, Chatham. Let's attack Chatham, which is just on River Midway, which is just south of the Thames. So let's sail to Chatham where England puts most of their boats. Ah, go so, yeah. This kind of Dutch balk on their idea throws England for a loop. England didn't know this was coming, but they had kind of had some spy network. And they, the, these ships that had the Dutch had been chasing go back and tell what's going on. There's a giant, oh, there's a, so many Dutch people coming up the river. And so England kind of goes to, to fortify and put all of their troops onto Gravesend. And England didn't really have a, a, a home force, a home military, because, again, no one attacks them. No, yeah, yeah, happen. exactly. It's an island. Um, they kind of send whatever they have towards Gravesend. Meanwhile, the Dutch are sailing towards Chatham. They hit Chatham and begin a days-long hammering 
of the port. Now, let's set the stage again. These English sailors, <laughs> they don't know this is coming. They're just sitting in their ships. Most of them are unpaid. These are skeleton crews. These ships are parked. And a massive, <laughs> massive Dutch armada rolls up, and they do what they can. M many of them start abandoning ship. England did design their ships, because they're, they're smart. That you don't get to where you there are without being smart to to be able to 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 sink strategically. So what you could do with these English ships was sh sink them yeah, so yeah. that they go to the ground, yeah. and then they the Dutch can't take them. You know you can't because at that point you you raid you take the ships you leave. The English start sinking all their ships, and the Dutch decide, hey, we're just going to start burning every ship that we find because <laughs> we don't care. They don't care. They don't want to take the ships. They want to just send a message like the Dutch are the king of the seas now, not the English. Luck have it. The English had designed this chain that kind of protected the, the yeah, harbor. Yeah, this one I do know. Yeah, I know this and story. It was put there to, during the, the, the Oliver Cromwell times so that the royals wouldn't come, come in. Uh, the English were protecting themselves. So if it wasn't for this chain, the Dutch would have gotten much further. They just start burning down every ship they can get to. A big one, the Mateus, gets destroyed. The main English flagship, the the Royal Charles, has a just as I said, a skeleton crew. They decide, hey, this isn't worth it. We're not paid, and they just leave the ship. And the Dutch decide, hey, this is the flagship. This is the pride of the English Navy. So we'll burn everything, but we're taking this one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to take the big one. You have, to take the, you have to take the flagship. They take the flagship back to the Netherlands. And at, on June by June, June 13th, the word has gotten to London that this is happening. And this is time when things are traveling by horses, and the word is all... Mix, mishmashed, uh, and but li li word gets to the Londoners that the Dutch are. They think the Dutch are coming. They think the Dutch are going to make their way to London, and so London starts evacuating. These people are all burnt up and plagued. <laughs> again. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're yeah, like, screw this. We're leaving, and they start. Um, there's a mass evacuation. All these rich people take all their valuables and they just leave, and it causes a massive panic. But what they don't know is at this point. By June 14th, the, the Dutch don't want to press their luck. They think they've done enough. No, you, and yeah, at that point, they just want to do a strategic victory. They don't really yeah, want to the English are starting to figure themselves out. England, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they weren't trying to invade. They were just trying to mess them up. And the English are starting to move their forces down and start to put up a resistance. So they they just leave. And... You know, it takes a couple days, actually, for this word to get to London that the Dutch had left because they don't know what's happening. This is so, like, what's going on? This is, doesn't happen. And so it, uh, London, it takes, it takes a while for London to kind of get back in, in, its, in its order. Um, it, and even if the Engl English are so good at, you know, keeping calm and carry on, this is one point <laughs> that that's not happening. It did kind of throw a wrench in the peace negotiations, but eventually they, they do kind of... Uh, reach an agreement and it's kind of lucky for the English that the Dutch didn't want to go full out because I think I think they, I think that the Dutch knew they pressed their luck 
Yeah. I mean, they did pretty well. <laughs> they, they got, they the they got very and, lucky. <laughs> they burnt down a ton of ships multiple days without much of a, of a resistance. And if they would have gotten a little bit more inland to the dockyard, oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. when the English build their ships, and most historians say that English probably wouldn't be able to come back for yeah, they, they said the monarchy probably would have fell at that point. Yeah, you know, it, it, you would have probably gotten democracy a lot faster. Yeah. This is like the last time that England was invaded by an enemy force. Hitler wanted to do this, but this is the last time enemy forces lay really lay boots on the ground. So that's why English don't talk about it. Meanwhile, the Dutch do like to talk about this. Do they, do they um, celebrate it? They kept the stern of the Royal Charles in the museum in Amsterdam. <laughs> it's still there. You can go see the stern. <laughs> That's great. They love it. There's a whole exhibit on this on this battle. Um, in 2012, they they did allow England to take it back temporarily to, to show it in their um, naval museum in Greenwich, which is amazing. I recommend everyone goes there. So they did then because there are there are allies now, sort of. We'll see what happens with the EU. Um, a little fun thing was this flagship, the Royal Charles, uh, Charles, was the boat for the first Earl of Sandwich. Earl of Sandwich? The first Earl of Sandwich. <laughs> His great-grandson, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, is... Is, it, wait, is, 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 is this where we get the sandwich from? These two? The Earl of Sandwich. Really? And he would ask for his meat put between two slices wow. of bread. Wow! Because the the, the the you know the the legend is that he wanted to play cards. He was actually like his uh, father and grandfathers before him was a na- uh, heavy navy naval businessman. So probably spent a lot of time at his desk. So wanted um, well, so he could eat quickly with his hands. He wanted oh. to, you know do his uh, desk lunch as we do now. This becomes so popular that people would ask for their meat like like sandwich has it. Like you, they want us meat like sandwich, which eventually becomes <laughs> like just the sandwich. <laughs> oh my god! Wait, and that's all true. So we got from no, we got opium, opium to sandwiches. Opium to sandwiches is where we got on this episode. Wow! I think I think that's where we'll leave it. Nevin, where can people find you on the internet? I'm still amazed about the sandwich. <laughs> uh, I'm on Instagram. I at uh, too many Nevins because there's too many yeah, Nevins. And Nevin on helps put um, stuff on our laughing historically, uh, laughing historically Instagram at laughing historically on Instagram. Yep. Um, and you can find our stuff on YouTube, YouTube.com/slash/laughinghistorically. And uh, that's the episode. Nevin, keep on reading. That's the Keep big thing. Keep That's the, you don't find out about where sandwiches came from. No. You know, if you read. Well, I'm reading a book about food right now, so I'm wondering if there will be the part about the sandwich in there. We'll see. We'll leave that. I'm sure <laughs> much more so far, both of our episodes have focused on food in one way or another. Food and drugs. That's the big food one. Drugs. That's what really matters in history. Now war is declared.